like half the congregation left. It's actually a good sign, you know, with that many young bodies. It's a healthy sign for the church, that many young families and young children. So how many of you uh, remember the Yellow Pages? They have them in museums now, I've been told. Or they sell them in, uh, in uh, Babies Are Us as uh, booster seats for, uh, you know, for at home. Yellow pages. Isn't that amazing uh, how they have become so obsolete? Right? If we're looking for information about businesses, we, we go to the Internet, don't we? Or at least the majority of people do. And I was, uh, this past week, I just went to our website to, uh, to kind of look at it. I don't go there that often, and, uh, but I did go to the website this week. And um, I noticed on the first page of the website that it, uh, it says the following, Foothill Bible Church making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that you see when you come to our webpage. Let me ask you a question. How do you think we're doing with that? How is it going? How are we doing making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ? It's a question the elders ask themselves with some frequency. And it's a question that as we ask it to ourselves and wrestle about how to answer it, we, we realize that, uh, that it is not an easily answered question. And the reason it's not an easily answered question is because, because people are not widgets on an assembly line. They don't yield themselves. Disciple-making doesn't yield itself well to standardization and, uh, and processes like you would if you were operating an assembly line and turning out various widgets. People are complex. People have values and motives that are both seen and unseen that make it difficult to work with them and to assess how are they, how are they doing in their discipleship. How are, they, how are they progressing in the likeness of Jesus Christ? But we can't throw our hands up in the air and say, well, it's just all subjective, right? Disciple-making is just, just a subjective thing. So, so we're about the process, but we have no way to evaluate the process. That would be madness. So the Scriptures don't leave us completely lost in this matter. They actually do address the issue of discipleship. And they speak about it in, in such a way that that the true characteristics or the characteristics of a true follower of Jesus Christ are made plain and evident if we'll look for them. And by knowing what they are, we have the ability to, to begin to evaluate first our own discipleship. That is, are we a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are we a true follower of Christ? And then, of course, we can evaluate others, particularly those with whom we are working. I'm discipling so-and-so. Well, how's it going? What are your measurement tools? How do you know that this person is becoming more and more of a disciple? Now, as we begin to, to talk about this topic a little bit, we ought, to, we ought to begin by saying two things. The first thing we need to say is that, that Christian growth does not come by self-effort. We ought to just begin with that. It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, and uh, 
and hunkering down and working harder and, and becoming more like Jesus through self-effort and hard work. We become like Jesus Christ. We become a, a growing disciple of Jesus Christ in the same way that we became a follower of Christ to begin with. And that is by the work of the Spirit of God in our heart, which we respond to in faith and obedience. How we entered into the Christian life is how we grow in the Christian life. It is a spirit-produced work. Beyond that, it's important to, to say up front here that it is a process of growth. It is a process of growth. It takes time to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, and, and all plants don't grow at the same rate of speed. Some grow quickly, others grow more slowly, but all living things grow. And so a disciple of Jesus Christ is growing. And I say this up front here because I don't want to, by the time I'm finished here this morning and next week, I don't want us to walk away discouraged by this. I do want us to be a little bit introspective, but I don't want to be discouraged Growth, yes. The same growth, rapid growth, not always. Spirit produced, yes. Self-effort, no. So with those things, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. We're going to look at verses 34 to the end of the chapter. I'm splitting it into two messages. There's enough richness here that we ought to slow down and mine it out a little bit. So this week and next, out of these verses, verses 34 to the end of chapter 10, we'll see four changes. Four changes that that occur as a result of following Jesus. Four changes that occur as a result of following Jesus so that we might measure the quality of our discipleship. I've entitled the message, Marks of a Disciple. There are four of them. Let me read the text for you this morning, beginning in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, 
Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Four changes. We'll look at two of them this morning. The first change is in verses 34 to 37, and it's this. Discipleship changes your loyalties. Mark of a disciple. It changes your loyalties. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to undergo a fundamental and profound change in loyalties. Verse 34, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That is a shocking statement. Jesus is is known for shocking statements. You read the Gospels, they, they occur with some measure of frequency, but this has certainly got to be one of them. It's a shocking statement. Because he declares here that that his purpose in coming is not to bring peace, he says, but to bring conflict. The sword is is a metaphor for conflict. He didn't come to bring peace. He said he came with the purpose of bringing conflict. He came to bring conflict. The conflict that he brings, it's not an unfortunate byproduct or consequence of his coming. It is the purpose, he says. Of his coming. He came to bring conflict into this world. It is the very purpose in which he stepped into space and time. Jesus came to divide people. He came to divide people. Now, judging by some of the looks on your faces, you are shocked by this statement. And so were his disciples. Indeed, so have the people of God down through the last two millennia. How do you square this with with the understanding that Messiah came to bring peace? I mean, the angels announced at his birth, right? In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The prophet Isaiah, speaking 750 years before his birth, says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, we put it on our Christmas cards. So how do we square this? How do we square the the Prince of Peace, the one whom the angels announced, peace on earth, by this one coming, with Jesus' statement that says, listen, don't make a mistake here. I came to bring conflict into the world. How do we answer that? Well, let me suggest to you quickly a twofold answer to this question. First, The peace that characterizes Messiah's kingdom, and it certainly will be a kingdom of peace, is not possible as long as humanity remains in rebellion against its creator. There is no peace for the wicked, the prophet says. As long as the great usurper Satan sits upon the throne of this earth, there can be no peace. God 
will not and cannot compromise with evil. In order for peace to come, evil must be subdued. At a global level, this means ongoing war with the spiritual forces of darkness. There is a war going on. It also means that that there is conflict with those who oppose the rule of Messiah. The world is in conflict. The world is at war. This conflict began in the garden, by the way. And it has continued right up until the present. It is prophesied, it is reported in the Old Testament, it is prophesied in the Old Testament for the age to come. And in fact, it is, it is unfolded for us in its final uh, uh, description in the pages of the book of Revelation. Chapters 16 to 19. The world is at war. And will be at war until evil has been subdued. But beyond that, at the personal level, I mean, there's this global conflict going on. But at the personal level, peace is only possible as a result of Jesus reconciling an individual to God through his sacrificial death on the cross. There can be no peace for you or I outside of being reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 where he has been reflecting upon the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. And his first words in chapter 5 verse 1 are, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the first fruit of justification. Beloved, reconciliation with God fundamentally changes us. It fundamentally changes us. It it changes us at the deepest level of our being. We go from being a slave of sin to becoming a child of God. A member of, of Satan's domain of darkness to a resident of Christ's eternal kingdom. And when that transformation takes place, it changes everything about us. Not fully, not completely, not perfectly, but necessarily so at at least the the germ level, and that begins to grow. There's a change of affections in our heart, and that plays itself out. We are no longer who we once were. We no longer chase after the life that we once chased after. The deeds of darkness, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says we are are to lay those aside. No more of the old life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Behold, all things have become what? New. All things new. And when that happens, it often generates hostility with those who were once with us in the old way of life. The transformation moves us in such a way, changes us in such a way that that those who, who are still in that old way of life often become hostile to us. 
They remain in opposition to Christ. That puts them in opposition to us. And I think it's exactly in in this sense that Jesus is, is talking about the conflict that he came to bring. His purpose is to separate out a people unto himself. And as he does that separating, it inevitably creates conflict. Verse 35, Jesus quotes Micah. Micah chapter 7 and verse 6. Micah 7, 6 was commonly understood among the the Jews of that day as, as referring to the woes that preceded the coming of the Messianic age. If Jesus' kingdom is close at hand, then the prophet said, prior to the coming of that kingdom will be a time of great woe. Great conflict. And the conflict will focus itself in the family. It'll focus itself in the family. Verse 35, Jesus says, For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now normally, by the way, when we see the word for, we're, we're looking for a reason. right? It supplies a reason. It's not so in this case. It's not as much a reason, he says, as an explanation of the conflict, he says. You could translate it this way. For you see, I came to set a man against his father, and so forth. Jesus says here that the, that the point of conflict is going to occur at the level of the family. The conflict he brings is going to come at the level of the family. It is the most fundamental, it is the most sacred, it is, the, most, it is the, most play, uh, the place of the most natural affection is within the family. And Jesus says it is to that place that the wedge will drive. Now, some cultural things going on here to be sure. In that culture, the loyalty of a son to his father was the supreme loyalty of a man. It was number one. The height of human loyalty was to see the son to his father. And it was followed closely by that of a daughter to her mother and then a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law as she entered into her husband's new family. And so Jesus says, listen, at the very center of these ancient loyalty structures, I'm I'm going to rip them apart. I'm going to tear families apart. And it's not a consequence, it's the purpose for which I came. I came to shred families. Now, how's that for a family-friendly message? By the way, in the early centuries of the Christian church, one of the recurring reasons given for the severe persecution by the Romans was that Christians tore families apart. They were not family-friendly. They were hostile to the family and dangerous to the fabric of society. Our message has changed, right? We're now the family-friendly ones. Maybe sometimes we're too family-friendly. Verse 37, He who loves father... Or mother, more than me, 
is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus sets it out very clearly here. It's a matter of priority. Where are your priorities? He assumes the natural love of the family. He says, yes, in a family you're going to love your parents and parents are going to love their children and husbands and wives and, and all of that. It's, going to, it's, it's a natural thing. It's going to be there. But the affection that is natural to a family cannot, listen to me, it cannot drive Jesus to, to off-center stage. It cannot push him into the background. It cannot. Loyalty to Jesus and His mission must come first. And if by it coming first, it severs family relationships and ties, then Jesus says, then that is a price you must be willing to pay. It is the cost of discipleship. This expression, worthy of me, we could translate it, I think, in a more modern idiom as, as has what it takes to be my disciple. He who loves father or mother more than me does not have what it takes to be my disciple. He who loves son or daughter more than me does not have what it takes to be my disciple. Shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Jesus says he will not share loyalties. He will, not, he will not take second place. He will not even accept a tie. It is first place, all others come second. First place loyalty. Now, beloved, in some cases, what that means is for one to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it can lead to all kinds of difficulties. It can mean that people are harassed by family members because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. People are disinherited because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. People are beaten because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Some people are even killed by their own family members because of their loyalty and commitment to Jesus Christ. It may mean that we have to speak out against a family member who is who is living in wickedness, lest our silence be misunderstood as approval. Sometimes it means we need to resist the the well-meaning but selfish attempts of, of family members to hold us back from seeking God's kingdom first. Oh, you don't want to do that. That's too risky. Christ is first place. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ can, can lead to conflict over baptism. It can lead to conflict with a, with, between a woman and her husband who he forbids her to be part of the worship of God's people. All over the place it brings conflict. We need wisdom in evaluating the, and counseling the specifics of the various situations. The point here is not to, to set a, a lay out a set of rules or guidelines but to understand that fundamentally to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that our loyalty changes and all other loyalties take back seat. All other loyalties. And that may well bring you into conflict with your family. 
it may well bring you into conflict with your family. And if and when that happens, you must choose Jesus Christ. This is the mark of a disciple. A disciple chooses Jesus Christ above family. Above family. Discipleship changes your loyalties. Secondly, discipleship changes your direction. Discipleship changes your loyalties. Discipleship changes your direction. Verse 38. And he who does not take up his cross, excuse me, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. It not only changes your loyalties, it fundamentally changes your, your direction in life. Your direction in life. You were going in one direction, you are now going in a different direction. In fact, you are going in the opposite direction. Now, this, is a, this expression, take up his cross, take up his cross, it appears in a number of places in the Gospels, the lips of Jesus. And what it means is has been subject to a wide variety of explanations. Some people see it as a, as a reference to literal martyrdom. He who does not die is not qualified to be my disciple, worthy of me. That's one interpretation. Others interpret it a little more figuratively, and, and they see it as a statement about self-denial, a statement about suffering, a statement about shame, a statement about rejection. And basically what they're saying is, is that he who does, is not willing to suffer shame and rejection and, and suffering in my name is not qualified to be my disciple. But I don't think it means that. I don't think it means literal martyrdom, although it could. And I don't think it means shame and suffering and rejection, although it could. I think it actually means something different and actually more profound. Something that gets at a deeper issue. Recently, I read an excellent article in the Dallas Theological Seminary Journal called Bibsack. And and the article was about the meaning of this expression, taking up your cross. And in the article, the, the author and I believe his argument was very persuasive, makes the point that take up your cross was a figure of speech that was well understood in Jesus' day. And then when he uses this expression, he is talking about a specific reality that everybody would have been aware of. It is a a well-understood figure of speech. And it is a figure of speech that that is derived from the Roman custom of requiring those who were to be crucified, and the Romans crucified those who were in rebellion against Rome, those who were insurrectionists. It was the Roman custom for the condemned prisoner to carry the cross member of their cross, the the beam, across their shoulders and and to carry it to their place of execution. And they would they would wear a placard hanging from their neck that would outline their crimes against Rome, the crime of insurrection. And the purpose 
of them doing this was to demonstrate to the world their execution by crucifixion was public. And it was designed to be a teaching moment. Kind of a gruesome teaching moment, but it was a teaching moment. Because as that condemned insurrectionist rebel to Rome was, was marched through the streets of the city in the most public of way, carrying this cross member, wearing this placard that, that outlined his crimes, all would look on and see and understand that even though this was a rebel, in the final moments of his life, he now was in submission to Rome. He did not die as a rebel. He died in submission to Rome. Rome publicly displayed that ultimately she always wins. All rebellion is crushed. And the people of Galilee, by the way, would would clearly understand this. Because about a year after Jesus' birth, there was an uprising in Galilee... And the Romans crucified 2,000 Galileans all over the place. This is not rare. This was something that was very much a part of their conscience, their understanding, their, their consciousness. And so this is the figure of speech. What Jesus is saying here in In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 38, he who does not take his cross and and follow after me cannot be my disciple. That's what it takes to be my disciple. What What he's basically saying is, listen, unless you submit to my lordship, you cannot be my disciple. It's about submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what the expression means. Unless you obey me, unless you do my will, you don't have what it takes to be my disciple. Beloved, God is, is very, very, very serious about hearing and heeding His Word. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and following. This is, this is the place where Saul loses the kingdom, right? Where Samuel confronts the the rebellious king, and he says to him, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God is interested in our obedience. He is interested in our submission to His authority. It is the Lordship of Jesus Christ that He is talking about here. This is the mark of a disciple. Their direction has changed. They are now walking under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, listen. Submission... To authority is all over the Bible. And it is all over the New Testament. God has appointed over you and I certain authority structures. And it is our submission to these authority structures that is a, that is a d- distinguishing mark of our Christian discipleship. 
Let me remind you here quickly. You go to to, uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. We are called to submit to civil authorities. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Submission to civil authorities is a mark of Christian discipleship. Agitation, rebellion against civil authorities is not a mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Submission. Turning to the right a little further, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 5. Submission of wives to husbands is a mark of Christian discipleship. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Married ladies... Ladies who want to be married, submission to your husband is a mark of Christian discipleship. To refuse it is to refuse Christ's lordship over you. And it's to manifest characteristics of unbelief. Wives to husbands. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children to parents. It is the mark of Christian discipleship for children to be submissive and obedient to their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. For this is right. You want to know, you're looking for for evidences of your children's salvation and commitment to Jesus Christ, their discipleship of Christ? Look for a heart of obedience. Look for a heart of obedience. Train to an obedient heart, not an external behavior. Chapter 6 and verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in in sincerity of your heart as to Christ. I think we we can easily enough make the application. Christian disciples who are employees, are submissive to their employers. It's a mark of a disciple. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Correction, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. A mark of Christian discipleship is for the people of God to be in submission to the leaders, the elders whom God has raised up among them. It is not optional. It is a mark of a heart in submission, which is the mark of a disciple. Now here, there's something we need to note in all of this. Every one of these authority structures, civil government, husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, elders and members of the local church, all of these authority structures 
Those in authority are flawed people. Would you grant that? They are flawed and sinful people. They can and often do make bad decisions. But nowhere is there any caveat that says that the authority and structure is invalidated because of their weakness. That's because the issue is really not, am I submitting to another human being? The issue is, am I submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ who established this flawed human being in a position of authority over me? See, my submission to a, to a fallen, frail, uh, error-prone human is really a faith response to God. Because I'm trusting God to work in my life through this damaged piece of merchandise. My boss, my husband, my parents, the elders, my president. That takes a heart of faith. That takes a heart of faith. That requires us to look through and beyond and, and, and pierce the authority structure to the one who really is in authority. When we submit to authority structures, we're submitting to God. And when we submit to God, we are taking up our cross. We are taking up our cross. It is the mark of a disciple. He who will not submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as manifest through the authority structure. It's easy to say, by the way, I'm under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I just can't stand all all these other authority structures in my life. No, you're not under the submission of the Lordship of Jesus Christ unless you're under submission to the authority structures Christ has established. That's how it works. Your faith has feet. This is what it takes to be a disciple. A change of direction. Listen. Listen, prior to conversion, our natural condition is one of rebellion against God. Would you grant that? The the consuming passion of our heart is to be our own boss. You are not going to rule over me. You know, no one made you the God of me. I'm God of myself. I will determine what is good and and not good. I'll determine the direction of my life. I'll determine where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, who I'll listen to, who I won't listen to. It manifests itself in rebellion. The essence of conversion is a change of direction. We call it repentance, right? It's like, not like, it is. It's 180 degrees. You're going in this direction, and then you're going now in this direction. That's why I say discipleship changes your direction. It's not, a, it's not a small course correction. You know, like I was mostly following God, and then, and then I got converted, and now I'm just, you know, I'm a little better following Him. Hogwash. You were not following God in any way, shape, or form. Your heart was at enmity with God. You hated Him. You wanted to be your own God. God has, has, didn't ask your permission. He stepped in, and He rearranged your entire life. He changed your affections. He drew you to Himself, and now you are living willingly under His Lordship. It's changed everything for you. That's what it means to become a disciple. Beloved, we need to, by the Spirit's enablement, we need to train ourselves to hear and heed the Word of God. To hear it and to heed it.
We have core values around here, right? Some of you know that. Some of you go, what's he talking about? That's another sermon. One of those core values is that we as Foothill Bible Church, we, we aspire to be determined to obey the Bible. Determined to obey the Bible. Why, why do we say we have to be determined to obey the Bible? It's because the Bible often cuts across the, the prevailing wisdom of this world. The Bible often confronts the way we want to do things, the easy way. The Bible often challenges our presuppositions, those things that we, that we hold deeply and believe to be true. And so we have to be determined to obey the Bible regardless of what we think the consequences might come from that obedience. We do what's right because God has said it's right. This is, in essence, submission to his lordship. Four marks of a disciple. Two of them this morning. Discipleship changes your loyalties. Following Christ takes precedence over everything, including the closest of human relationships. Following Jesus Christ changes the direction of your life. It brings you under his lordship. These are the marks of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. May God grant us grace to grow in our obedience to his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving our souls. The natural man has no desire for the things of God. The natural man has no ability to do the things of God. They're foolishness to him. And yet, our Father, by your Spirit, you have granted us the new birth. We have become new in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. We have a new loyalty, our Father. We have a new direction. And our Father, it's not perfect for us, as you well know. But Lord, it is a new direction and it is a new loyalty. We pray for your Spirit's aid and enablement to continue to to walk on the path of life. To grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray for your Spirit to use his word, even this morning, to penetrate deep into our souls. Enable us to do the necessary self-evaluation. To recognize those places where we have fudged a little. Where we've tried to have it both ways. Give us wisdom, O Lord. Grant us mercy and compassion. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.